But if you have those blue pew Bibles, I'll tell you, you can find it on page 1032. It's page 1032 of those blue pew Bibles. I'm going to read verses 9 through 17. All right? Here we go. John is speaking and he says, After this I looked and behold a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures. And they fell on their faces before the throne and they worshipped God saying, Amen, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Then one of the elders addressed me, saying, Who are these, clothed in white robes, and from where have they come? I said to him, Sir, you know. And he said to me, These are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore, they are before the throne of God, and serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. They shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more. The sun shall not strike them, nor any scorching heat. For the lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd. And he will guide them to springs of living water. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please be seated. Have mercy. Let me pray for us. Lord Jesus, we are amazed that you have come even as Nathan and Athena just sung for us. We are amazed that you have seen the brokenness and the chaos of this world, that you created whole and perfect, and that we, your image bearers, have broken. We have broken it to such an extent that were it up to us, there would be no hope at fixing it. But Lord Jesus, you came because the Father covenanted that you would. We praise you that you come to be with us even now, and we confess as Christians, those of us who are here who profess faith, the brokenness of our world has overwhelmed us this week. We have friendships that are fractured. We are praying for siblings and for children we have parents who are facing death and we have sent children away to school. We are tempted to believe that the end toward which we are working is our own pleasure, our own peace, 
and our own sense of security. And we praise you that knowing that about us, you still have come to us. Lord Jesus, we who confess you are those who need you and need to see you. Father, there are some with us today who have yet to trust that you are a God who moves toward us in love and a God who is generous with us, giving us everything that we need. And Lord Jesus, I would ask that you would make yourself known to these for the first time, that today would be the day that they say, I understand, I know, I believe, I have hope. Lord Jesus, as we sung, we ask you again, would you come and be with us? Holy Spirit, you're the one that makes that happen, not us. It is not our effort. It is not our energy. It is not our efficiency, and it's not our intellect. It it is you working among us, and so we ask you, would you please come and do that in a way um, that, as Dan has said, is immeasurably more than anything we could ask or imagine. Father, we pray this for those of us who are entering our week on day number one today, entering into a new week. We pray it even more for those who are here with us who will leave us and go away for this next season and for those who have already left us and gone away for this next season. Would you comfort them with your presence? Father, we thank you and we praise you that you have given us to each other and that now we proclaim peace before you And now we read your word so that we might become more like Jesus, our Savior. Father, finally, would you move these women and men, would you move us into moments of prayer in these next few weeks, that we would, this next few minutes, that we would worship you and that we would praise you and that we would interface with you. I pray all of this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, truth be told, the book of Revelation is one of my favorite books, if not my most favorite book of the Bible, because of a great seminary professor, honestly. We are ending this series that we have called for the blessing of the nations with this book of Revelation. We've been asking the question this whole season, why does a God make himself known as a covenant-keeping God? Why does the God of the Scripture make himself known as a covenant-keeping God? And we have said, straight out of Genesis 12, it is for the blessing of the nations. That's what we have said. Nathan defined blessing for us last week, and if Nathan and I were to write a book, we both chuckled to each other, and we said we could probably leave the definition of blessing to the beginning of the series and not to the end. But last week, he was very clear in being able to say, hey, look, the, the definition of blessing that makes sense is that God blesses his image bearers, enables us as women and men to accomplish that which is our end and our purpose. That's what it means to bless, right? And that was really encouraging. 
Nathan and I have asked the question, what is the image that we want to leave in your minds as we step away from this sermon series for the blessing of the nations and we look into the life of Isaac and Jacob out of Genesis chapters 25 and forward. I have a funny story to tell you about this idea of of impressing an image on you. I performed a wedding for Matt Dottillo. Those of you who know Joe and Chris, you can celebrate with them. Uh, Matt loves the Grateful Dead, as does his father. And so I had to call my resident expert, Dan Allred, to figure out how I could make those connections to cement for those guys what it meant when God says to put on kindness. And so Dan gave me this incredible, uh, this incredible verse out of one of the Grateful Dead songs, and I gave him that verse, and they were all laughing, and they thought, isn't that great? And the verse ends with a question that simply says, are you kind? And I looked at the bride, and I looked at her, and I said, are you kind? And I paused for a minute. And I just paused for a second, but when I did, the sky split open with a peal of thunder. And everybody in the entire crowd stopped and looked at me as if I were responsible. And I looked at them and I go, you don't pay for that kind of thing. That just happens, right? And and those two leave their wedding with this image in their mind. You see it, right? You understand what I'm saying? So the question is, what's the image that's being left in your mind? We've seen Abraham and God's promise to Abraham. We've seen Joseph and Joseph's blessing of Egypt. We've seen God give the law where he says that we ought to love the foreigner and stranger among us. We've seen Naaman, the Syrian Lord who had leprosy and was healed by Elijah. We have seen the song of Zion in Psalms 87. We have seen Jonah in his hard heart not wanting what God wants, which is for the blessing of the nations. We have seen Israelite, Israel being called a light to the nations. We have seen Daniel's love for Nebuchadnezzar, a king who crushed him. We have seen the promise in the prophets that 10 non-Jews would take the hymn of a Jew and say, take me to your God, for we have heard that he is with you, Emmanuel. We have seen Jesus' great commission. We have seen Philip with the Ethiopian. And finally, we have heard the Apostle Paul say in Ephesians, that in the death and the resurrection of Jesus, that the barriers of hostility have been torn down between us and God and us and each other. So what is the image that you will take away? It's why we turn to the book of Revelation. Revelation is about images. It's about apocalyptic literature. It's about literature for the end times. It's written for this reason, that your faith may endure. Are you worried that your faith might not endure? I'm only 51 years old, but I can tell you already the sadness of seeing friends whose faith has not endured. So what is the image that you are going to see? This image is very important. I don't know if you've ever tried to walk a tightrope before. For some reason in high school, we thought to be good rock climbers, we had to be tightrope walkers. And you go, what is the connection? I have no clue. But all I know is that what I learned when I was tightrope walking is that you have to stare at the very end of where you're going and you don't deviate away from that image at all. Because if you do, you're going to fall. So before us is an image. 
that I want you to stare at. I'm going to ask you three things. What is seen? I'm going to ask you what is heard. And I'm going to ask you what is explained. Right? Pretty straightforward, right? What is seen, what is heard, and what is explained. Let's look at this really quickly. The first thing that I want to say is what is seen. Verse 9, right in front of you, tells us what you see. It is very straightforward. After this, John is speaking. He says, after this I looked and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice. What is seen? In the context of what John is giving us as this image, in the image that God has given us that our faith might endure, he has seen angels calling out and saying, those who will be redeemed will be a complete set from all of the tribes of Israel. And then we see those tribes of Israel represented here as women and men, image bearers of God, from every tongue and tribe and nation and people. Everyone represented right here. Every nation. This is a full example. This is a full illustration of God's promise that he gave Abraham in Genesis 12 and in Genesis 15 and in Genesis 22 that you will be a blessing to all the nations that the, those who will be called your children will be like the sands of the seashore or the stars of the heavens and here we are given that image our distinctive features as image bearers of God our distinctive features that allow us to look differently than each other that glorify God in our creation will be recognized in eternity. Think about that. That's amazing. And that's what is being illustrated here. They are standing before the throne of God and before the Lamb. These are standing in God's presence. The image that John is giving us is of an entire people redeemed from every tongue, tribe, nation, and people standing in the presence of God and then clothed with white robes, with palm branches. If you studied, you know, the, the book of Revelation, if you, if you remember a little bit about the Old Testament, the idea of, of, of robes needing to be washed and cleaned before people came into the presence of God, you would know that what this means is that these people have been purified, they have been cleansed, they have been victorious and with these palm branches, they are proclaiming peace to their God and to their ruler. You remember when Jesus entered in on the triumphal entry, what did they say? Hosanna. And what does that mean? Save us. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And they put down palm branches, right? From the very beginning of this image, I have a question to ask you. Why should we care about? Why should we pray for? Why should we engage in? Why should we work toward racial reconciliation in the church and in our lives? Because of this image right here. The redeemed makeup of God's people. The church universal that has existed since the moment God proclaimed his promises 
And Eve said, look what you, God, have done. This church birthed. In engagement with racial reconciliation, the church is simply responding to what God holds forth as the image. A lot of times we ask ourselves, hey, are we just talking about this because culture is talking about this? This image reminds us that that cannot be the case. Listen, it is true that sometimes God uses the world as a mirror for the church. And you go, Bradley, give me an example. Babylonian captivity, there's a great example. God's saying, do you want to know what it's like for, for me to come among you and proclaim my holiness and my salvation? I'm going to send you among your enemies, and I'm going to show you what it means. The world is a mirror to the people. But this idea of reconciliation across races and peoples, languages, and tribes, it is not the idea of the world. Reconciliation is not a worldly idea. It is God's idea. And if you want to hear more about that, listen to Nathan's sermon last week on Ephesians 2. It happens to be the first result of the gospel, that the barriers of hostility between us and God and us and each other are torn apart. It also happens to be one of the issues of one of the very first conflicts of the early church in Acts chapter 6. And so we see here that it is because of the power of the gospel that fulfills God's redemptive promises that we ought to care about reconciliation and specifically racial reconciliation in the church and in the world to which we have influence. We see that this image that is given to us of this church is in the presence of God, right? In verse 12, you see this picture, right? It says, it says that they are there in the presence of God. It says all the angels in verse 11 were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures, and they fell on their faces before the throne and they worshiped God. You have to go back to chapter 5 in Revelation to get the full picture of that entirety. But it is awesome, and so this image of God's redeemed people is in his presence. That is what is seen. But let's look at what is heard for a minute. Verses 10 and 12, this is the second of three. What is seen, right? A multitude from every tongue and tribe and nation and people. But now what is heard? Verse 10 is very simple because it's cried out by that multitude. Verse 10 says this, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to our Lamb. I want you to pay attention just a little bit closer. It says that they cried out in a loud voice. One singular voice. One voice that made sense, so it was one language. You remember the history that we've covered. The story of the Tower of Babel 
in chapter 11 of Genesis that was the context in which God gave the promise to Abraham in chapter 12 that through him all the nations would be blessed, what happens there? They come together with one language and one purpose. And they said, we're going to build a tower of our own to heaven. We're going to do it ourselves. There's this incredible Twitter feed that I was given access to. You know, guys know that I don't do Twitter. I don't even know how to post on Facebook. I mean, I'm such a Luddite. But if you go and you search this guy named Ari Lamb and you look him up on Twitter, he has this feed as a Jewish scholar about the Hebrew language, about the Tower of Babel, and it will make your mouth drop open. It's incredible what is really being communicated in that story, that through oppression and through human volition and sinfulness, humanity attempted to save itself. But what did God do? He dispersed them at the Tower of Babel. Why? Was he intimidated by them? Was God offended by human beings? You guys, the entirety of Scripture tells us that God loves us. He dispersed them. He he cursed them. He discouraged their attempts because of his love. And then what did God do when he dispersed humanity out in all these languages? What did God do? He called a people to himself and he spoke to them in a given language, Hebrew, so that they might know him. But God didn't stop at speaking to human beings, did he? God became flesh. The word became flesh. Jesus came and he made God known to us. And then you know the story. Jesus was crucified for our sins. He died and on the third day was raised again by God. And Pentecost happens. The Spirit is poured out. And all of the people who are in Jerusalem, what do they hear? They hear the apostles proclaiming the good news of the gospel all in their own language, don't they? All in their own language. But here, there is one language and one voice. God has accomplished what he set out to do. Salvation is from God. Listen, this is something that we need to hear, especially when we're going to talk about racial reconciliation, when we're talking about a passage that is so, is so filled with tension that not only our culture brings to it, but we bring to it and all of humanity brings to it. We cannot save ourselves. We cannot enact reconciliation. Not the Tower of Babel. Not the city of Babylon. As Augustine says, not the city of men. Not legislation. Not politics. God must save us. God brings reconciliation. It is his idea. Listen, the world might be a mirror for us today in highlighting and waking the church up to this call for racial reconciliation, but the world has no words for the church. None. Because what we need as human beings made in the image of God is salvation from our God and from the Lamb. God saves sinners. Church, do you believe this? Do you believe this? 
I have found in my own life as I've looked at myself that the level to which I am discouraged is the level to which I honestly find in my heart unbelief. That I am not focused here on this image that is given to us about this redeemed multitude in the very presence of God proclaiming salvation belongs to our God and to our Lamb. But I want you to know that it is this focus that ought to give us hope. Because see, a mirror to us doesn't give us any hope, does it? It doesn't give us any hope at all. But a window into reality, a window into the future, a window into promise gives us hope. And we go, yes, that's it. There is no salvation for humanity apart from God. There is no solution for reconciliation within humanity apart from God. The solutions must come from the person and the work of Jesus Christ, the Lamb. It has to start there. And any actions that take place, and look, I don't know what those actions are. I don't have a list of things we ought to be doing. I don't know. That's why the Micah 6-8 group gathers and prays and invites you to come and pray. I don't know. But what I know is they have to come out of the seedbed of the person and the work of Jesus. Listen, church. It is this image that you pray for every time you pray, and your kingdom come, and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. This is the focus. And I want to remind you of one other thing they say. Salvation is from our God, who what? Who is seated on the throne. What does that mean? It means God is ruling today. That today, our day, God is ruling. I want you to know this. It does feel to us as if everything is spinning out of control, as somebody said at my house just the other night. But I want to remind you, church, it's the city of man that's spinning out of control. It is not the city of God. Because we have a God who is seated on the throne and a lamb who has been slain seated next to him. And we have hope. We have hope. It says that God who is seated on the throne and to the lamb, he alone is the only, listen to me, he alone is the only human being to entrust ourselves to Jesus Christ the Son of God, and the Son of Man. This image returns to chapter 5. Suddenly we see chapter 7 and chapter 5 coming together in this sermon. And those who are there in chapter 5 simply say this, Amen! And they say, Blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Right there in verse 12. Look, that's a whole other sermon. I would love to go through each of those for you. And go, why is this word important? Another sermon, because the last thing that I want to tell you is what is explained. We've seen what is seen, we've seen what is heard, but now we see what is explained. In verse 13 through 17, one of the elders, won't it be interesting to find out who this one was when we get to heaven one day or when heaven descends onto this earth in the new Jerusalem and we ask the question, hey, who said this? 
Because one of the elders addressed John, addressed me saying, whose are these clothed in white robes and from where have they come? And John very wisely goes, I don't have a clue. He goes, you know. And then the elder responded to him and he said, these are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the lamb. What is explained? It's explained who the multitude is. In verse 14, the answer to that question is those who have come out of the great tribulation, those who have suffered and filled up in the body of Christ, the suffering that was lacking, as the Apostle Paul says, us who have washed our clothing in the blood of the Lamb, who have said we have no righteousness, none that is our own. We have no solutions, none that are our own. We have no hope, none that is anchored in us, only what you have given us, Jesus. We have washed our very clothes and our covering, our righteousness before you in your blood. Those whose faith has endured the blood is no longer on the doorposts and the lentils. The blood is on us, and we have been washed clean. What is the result of that? That's the second thing that is explained in verse 15. You see that the result is these redeemed in the very presence of God, God with man, the very thing that he's promised since the beginning when he kicked Adam and Eve out of the garden. Because of sin, he has made it all right and washed us clean and brought us back in. Verse 16 says relief. Do you want relief? Do you cry out at night for relief? Look at verse 16. And they shall hunger no more, neither shall they shall thirst any more. The sun shall not strike them, nor the scorching heat. Guess what? God is bringing relief. But if your focus is on relief, you're falling off. Our focus is on this union of the redeemed of God's people in his presence. Because the next result is in verse 17. The lamb who was slain rules as the shepherd. Now think about that for a minute. Suddenly, the images of scripture crash in and you go, how can a lamb be a shepherd? Read chapter 5 and it's very obvious that the lamb is Jesus. The lamb who's looks as if it was slain, it says in chapter 5, who has the scars of crucifixion in his hands. God has said from the very beginning that his people are his sheep, his flock. Psalm 23 talks about our God as our great shepherd. But suddenly our shepherd is a lamb like us who has borne our sin and our punishment. He is Christ. And what is the result the result is a city that works with no oppression or rebellion or division. Do you see that? For the lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd and he will guide them to springs of living water and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Mita and I went to Lagos, Nigeria about two years ago and it is told that Lagos is going to be the largest city in the world by 2040. It already has about 20 million people in it. And they said by 2040, it's going to have 40 million people in it. And the Lagos that I saw does not work. <laughs> it doesn't work in any way. But the image that is given here is an image of a city that works. 
and in which God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. You guys, that promise is from Isaiah 25. I want you to remember, human beings have been crying since Genesis 3. Sisters and brothers, unless Jesus comes back, you and I will enter heaven with tears. But the promise of this image is that God will wipe away all of our tears. There's one other place that he says this in the book of Revelations, and that's Revelation chapter 21. It is the city that descends from heaven onto the earth, the city that is the union of God's redeemed people and himself. It is that city. And it's accomplished through the work of the Lamb. It is these first two images of Revelation 5 and 7 joined into Revelation 21. It is the image of the new Jerusalem. And it is this image that I am praying and that the Bible gives us to be seared onto our hearts. Do you know what an after image is? The idea of looking at something bright, right? We've all done this. You could, you could come up here and look at these lights when you come and get communion. You look up at the light and then you close your eyes and what do you see? You still, still see two lights, an after image. It's a chemical reaction in your retina. That's all that is and it fades away. This image is an image that needs to be seared onto our hearts. Just yesterday, I walked with a man whose wife is dying. And we were talking about painting and about images. And I was asking him, how do you paint when something is live? And he said, you know, Bradley, that's an interesting thing. He said, I've been reading a lot about that. He's 80 years old and he's still reading and learning. How about that? That's pretty impressive. And he said, I've been reading a lot about that. And he said, you know, in Western tradition, if you had two days to study an image, you would look at an image and you'd sketch, and you'd look at an image and you'd sketch, and you'd look at an image and you'd sketch, and you'd look at an image and you'd sketch. And, you'd and, you'd sketch. and your attempt was to capture that image. He said, but in the Chinese tradition of painting, if they had two days, the Chinese painters would stay for two days and stare at the image. No painting, no sketching, no materials, staring at the image. And their hope is that after two days they would go back to their easel and to their canvas. And they would paint and be able to capture the soul of the image. Sisters and brothers in Christ, God's church, this is the image of the soul of our God. And this is the image that ought to be burned into our retinas as we beg of him to lead us by the truths of the gospel into the ministry of reconciliation that he has given to us. Please pray with me as we come to eat.